We've been in Matthew 22 now for a little bit, and uh, I just want to kind of summarize where we've been, because today is really, uh, it's, it's the crux. I mean, it's the high point of Matthew 22. This is when Jesus gets to ask his questions. Uh, see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers have been asking Jesus questions, trying to trap him throughout. And now Jesus gets to speak. So we started back in verse 15. Um, verse 15 started the first of the three questions that have been asked. And these are questions that are not just for first century Jews, but they're for us today. I mean, this first one, back in verse 15, well, is about government. It's about politics. It's about what do we do with a government, good or bad? What do we give them? Jesus' response was, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. There are some Christians who believe that they owe nothing to their civil authority. Jesus says, no, there are certain things you're to give to Caesar, but then everything goes to God. And so we see that. It's an important lesson for us to learn. Pharisees were hoping to trap him and teach him a lesson that they know best, and then Jesus destroys their argument. The second question, a little farther on, is a question we all have, is what is life after death going to look like? You remember the Sadducees came along, and they were like, well, what if this woman married seven guys, not at once, but in a row, and who would be her husband in heaven? Jesus goes, ah, that's not important. Let's talk about what heaven's going to be like. And we spend some time looking at that, about the resurrection and what that means Remembering that God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So what is our destiny after death? So politics and death, right? I mean, that literally those are two huge topics even to today. And then the final question last week. What is the supreme duty of any life? What is the main thing and what should we do with it? What is the chief command? What is the prime duty? What is the thing that we must focus everything on? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. So these are the three questions that have been, been, been ambushed on Jesus. And every single time, what he does is he goes to God's word and he says, here's what the word says. Now, the living word, Jesus himself, is going to get some words in. So let's read our passage in Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. That's pretty powerful, right? I teach junior high, uh, seventh grade Bible, and uh, my junior high boys especially are famous for asking lots and lots and lots of questions. I would love to ask a question of them so great that they didn't ask another question sometimes. <laughs> no, their questions are valuable and they're good, even if they are chasing bunnies. <laughs> but Jesus asks a question, and he answers it by his question, and he answers it by the life that he's going to live in these final few chapters of Matthew. 
So before we get into the text, I want you to notice what Jesus did here. There's some encouragement for us. I think the encouragement for us, for those of you here that know Christ as your Savior, there's an encouragement when it comes to evangelism. And you're like, well, what's the encouragement? He's Jesus. He has, you know, he's got like better, better information than Google could ever imagine being God. But look at what Jesus does here. They ask him hot button questions about their time, right? Well, what, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And Jesus goes, well, the Bible says this. Well, the Bible says that. The Bible says this. But let me have you talk about Jesus at the end. Jesus could have answered them. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus could have walked through all the verses about heaven in the Old Testament. He could have done a three-hour dissertation on politics and balancing that out. He could have lectured on the law as the one who created it, the one who embodies it. But he didn't. He gave him a short answer, and then he said, let's get to the real thing. And so what is the encouragement for us? Well, we're called to evangelize, which means to tell the good news about Jesus. We are not called to be experts on gender theory, LGBTQ rights, critical race theory, immigration, political theory, whether lawsuits count as this, whether that is that. We don't have to be experts on all the hot button issues that are all over the place on our TVs and our phones. Instead, we just need to know the one who saved us. And so that's the key. Our world's going to go, look over here. What about this? What about this controversy? And yes, we come to him and say, well, the Bible says this, and you're probably not going to like it, but let me introduce you to the one who wrote it. Let me introduce you to the one who embodies it. So get away from the petty fights about all these things and get to Jesus. And you're like, but hold on, I'm not an expert on Jesus. Well, guys, guess what? You can be. He wants to have a relationship with you, right? He wants to have a relationship with you so that you know him intimately. You're not talking about something that you know nothing or about that you Googled. You're talking about somebody that lives inside of you that you are having a relationship with. Share that with the people around you. That's what true evangelism is. Not having all the answers, but knowing the one who does. Amen? All right, that's your mini sermon. Let's get into the real thing now. So, who is Jesus? This is a huge question. This is life and death. This is condemnation or salvation. This is hope, despair, heaven, hell. Who is Jesus? What do we do with him? This question is the question of questions. It is the greatest question by far. So let's set the stage. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together. So the Pharisees have been having a rough day, okay? They've been having a a, a difficult time. So the picture we're in, we're in the temple. So they're hanging out in the temple. This is where teachers would come and teach. This is their home turf. And Jesus first flips tables, casts out all the money changers, and then comes back in and is teaching, and people are following him around. So Pharisees can't have this, so they, they, they trap Jesus with a bunch of word traps, word questions. But Jesus is just not having it. He's evaded their traps deftly. He's walked right through them. So the Pharisees are regathering at this point. They're sitting there going, okay, what are we doing now? Like, what, what's the plan? See, Jesus always causes problems. He's still causing problems to this day, isn't he? What do we do with Jesus? 
See, there's not a person on the planet that can't have an opinion on Jesus. I mean, goodness sakes, we, we make our calendars based on his birth, right? No matter what other letters they add, it's all around when Jesus was born and then every year since is Adonai, the year of our Lord, common era, whatever you want to call it. But every religion has to deal with Jesus somehow, right? The Jews dealt with it by saying, ooh, he worked some magic and he did some tricks. One Jewish writer said in, in 100 AD, Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. I think most people today, if you ask, they would say Jesus was a good man. You're not going to hear anybody saying he was awful. They might say he might be a little repressive in some of his views based on their views. But they're going to say a good man, a good teacher, a great teacher, maybe even someone to look up to. And, you know, the thing about that is, is that that's right. It's not wrong. He is a great teacher. He is someone to look up to. Maybe he is the best of all men. But underneath that, we see this kind of denial of what Jesus claimed. Because Jesus didn't claim to just be like any other guy. He claimed to be God. And if we're honest, this is where most of our attacks happen on Christian doctrine. It's on whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. Now, I would love to say that early Christians had it all figured out, right? But when we look at the Bible and we look at church history, we know that the Bible is not a theological study book, right? It doesn't just lay it all out. Here's a diagram of what Jesus is like, and here's a diagram of what he's not like. They didn't have that. Instead, they were mostly running for their lives for the first 300 years of Christianity. And they were also trying to figure out what is not true because we have these things called heresies that popped up. These heresies were things that taught stuff that only had part of the Bible. See, whenever you take Jesus and you only want part of him, you actually become heretical. You become wrong in your thinking, right? We want to have the full Bible picture. And so early on, there were a bunch of heresies that came along. Ebionism, Jesus was just a man. He was a prophet. Adoptionism, Jesus wasn't divine, but when he was baptized, he became more divine than you and I, right? Docetism, Jesus was God, but he only appeared to be a man, kind of had a man cloak on. Gnostics, Jesus wasn't human at all. He was a spirit, and anytime it said someone touched him, he was playing a trick on them. Or Marcionism that says Jesus is not God at all. He's kind of a demi-god, kind of a little bit lesser god, a titan, if you will. So these are some of the early things, and, and, what these, and I, I say these not because, hey, you need to know them all, it's on the quiz later, I'm saying these because early Christians, they, they had to constantly go to all of God's word and say, what is all of this saying? And if you say, well, Jesus is only a man, well, then you have to deal with these verses over here. Well, Jesus is God, then you have to deal with these man verses over here. And so what happened over time is as people thought about these and compared them and got their minds wrapped around it and the Holy Spirit helped us understand it, we saw that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. And you can ask every single math teacher, you can't have two 100%. It doesn't work to equal 100%. At least that's what I've been taught, all right? So Jesus defies all of our understanding. But by taking all of Scripture as a whole, we see that Jesus is the God-man. Like I said, everybody's got to figure out what to do with him. So most people just say he's a good guy. A lot of religions actually kind of try to make him something a little special, but they'll never say he's God. 
The New Age say that Jesus is a man who has a Christ consciousness, which is something you can awaken in yourself. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet who taught Islam, not Christianity, didn't die on a cross, and is not as good as Muhammad. Buddhists believe Jesus was an enlightened teacher. He just had a little more knowledge than you or I. Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science, teaches that Jesus was a man who could teach divine things. I'm not sure how that works. Scientology, which is a, uh, let's be honest, it's a little bit of a hot mess sometimes. Scientology is operate, he's an operating Thetan who could tap into the higher consciousness of ghosts of aliens that died on earth. Okay. Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They knock on your door, or at least they used to. They believe that Jesus is an angel. He's the Archangel Michael. Mormons, who also used to knock on doors, they believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, the firstborn of a literal sexual union between the God of this world and one of his many wives. All of these are saying that Jesus is something we have to reckon with. We have to reckon with the fact that not only was he a man, but there's something extra special about him. I think the fact that every single religion has to find a way to make him better than all of us, but not let him be God, says, you know, maybe he was a lot better than us, and maybe he is God. They all fail, these misinterpretations and misconceptions. And this is exactly what Jesus is walking into. The Jews have a view of what the Messiah, the Christ, is going to be like. They have a view of that. They're saying, this is what he has to be. And Jesus is going to dig right down to it and say, let's actually read the scripture and see what it says. So let's finish verse 41. Jesus asked them a question. Not true. Actually, he's going to ask four. But we're going to start with the first one here. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? See, here's the thing. He's asking the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about this one who is coming? I mean, you have prophecies about him. You have all of the Old Testament that talks about him coming. What do you think he is like? How they and how we answer that really shows us what we think we need, right? So when you ask somebody, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the Christ? You must first go, well, what is he here for? What's my problem? And then how does he solve that problem? How is he able to solve that problem? The Pharisees were very clear. We have one problem. It's Rome, right? Capital R, Rome. We got to get rid of Rome. We get rid of Rome. Everything's going to be great. God got rid of Rome a few hundred years later. It still hasn't gone well for the Jews. So the Rome was not the problem. But they saw it and they said, we need a political savior. We need a general. We need someone to step in and be the man's man, better than David, conquer Rome. Let's get rid of them. Jesus is going to say, you're aiming too low, folks. You got to go higher than that. So how we view Christ reveals what we think is our problem, what we think is the thing we need saving from. Jesus is always pigeonholed into different things and different places and said, well, Jesus speaks to this group and Jesus speaks to that group. And the answer is he speaks to all groups. But anytime someone says, well, Jesus would do this little thing here or this little thing there, they're probably right, but they're not also big enough. They're not high enough for where Jesus is supposed to be. So our main idea, if you're taking notes, is Jesus is fully man and fully divine. Or to say it another way, Jesus is David's son and David's Lord. 
So let's look at this. Jesus is David's son. The rest of verse 42. Whose son is he? They, the Pharisees, said, the son of David. Now, what, we, what they mean here is they don't mean the literal son of David. David had several wives. One of his most famous sons is Solomon, literally from his line. That's not what this means. This means from the bloodline of David. They said, who did he come from? What's he, who's he related to? And they correct answer, and they answer it rightly, is he's the son of David. Now let's pause for a sec. What does this word Christ mean? This word Christ comes from the Greek. It means Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word, which is Mashiach, which is Messiah. So that doesn't help, right? I just use a couple more churchy words. Well, what this means is this means the one who is anointed by God, all right? Now, anointing in this time meant you are saying you are the king. You are the ruler. That's what anointing was. There wasn't any other sort of anointing. It was the anointing. So if you remember, remember David, when, David was, was, uh, when Samuel went to acknowledge David as king, David was off with the sheep, kind of hiding. He brings him in and he anoints him and says, you are the king, so the Messiah is God's anointed. He's the one that's going to come as the ruler, the master, the Lord of all. So at this point, when they talk about the Christ, they're talking about overthrowing the Romans. Because in the prophecies, and there's one specific one that I'm going to point out, but there's, there's hundreds of prophecies for the Messiah, there, it, it looks like it might be political. So let's look at one of those. 2 Samuel chapter 7 Verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. This is Samuel talking to David. I will raise up for your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, sounds like a political kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so the, the Israelites hear this, and they're going... Sounds political to me. Kings, kingdoms, let's overthrow the Romans and we'll last for forever. Well, if they'd read their Bibles, they knew, they would have known that this earth is not going to last forever. God has spoken in his word that there is going to be an end. And at that end, when the final trumpet sounds, he's going to rebuild creation, a new earth and a new heaven in which we will live forever. This is the kingdom that he's talking about. He's talking about a kingdom based on people who have converted and follow Christ from this point on throughout eternity. And so this kingdom is not just the here and now, but it's also for forever. So this is the person that they're talking about. Now the crowds got this, right? We saw this back in Matthew 21 at the triumphal entry. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. They're saying, we think you're the Messiah, you're here, you're ready to conquer, let's go. So these, these Pharisees, they get it right, but they don't quite go far enough. It's kind of like, you remember that old game, Guess Who? Remember that game? Had all these character faces, right? And then somebody on the other side picks one and you pick one and you're like looking at them and you try to ask a question so you can put all the faces down. And you just go on the very first question, you go, is it a man? And they go, yes. And you're like, okay, I won. Yes, it's a man. Well, you've just narrowed it down to 50% of all the people who've ever lived. And so all they've done with this son of David is they've just narrowed it down. And, and Jesus has agreed with them. Yeah, son of David, this is what the Messiah is going to be. However, you haven't gone far enough. 
You haven't read your Bibles closely, which is what he says all the time to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, the Jews had been poring over the Old Testament scriptures, and they went passage by passage, and they had a really good understanding of the Messiah. And he's standing right in front of them, and they miss it. So today, don't miss, as we are talking about Christ, he's going to be standing right in front of you through the words that we look at. Don't miss him. So the Old Testament tells us he will be an exalted descendant of David. He will come to save his people. He would be an heir of David. He would be righteous, appointed by God, foiling his enemies. He would drive the oppressors out. He would establish the law of God's people, for God's people. Righteousness would flourish in the land. Injustice would be banished. He would rule all rulers. This is the Messiah that they're waiting for. But the high, and even with that description, you kind of are going, well, this seems like something more than just a human. See, they were limited by their imagination. All they could imagine was a human leader to get rid of Rome. They couldn't imagine something more. Jesus is saying, no, the Messiah is so much more. He'll be more than you've ever dreamed of. And this is the big question. This is the question. How, how do we understand Jesus? You get it half right, do you only want half of his salvation? Do you only want half of what he can offer you? They get the Messiah is going to be an actual human of the bloodline of Jesus, but they don't go any farther. So where do we see this today? Where do we see this in our world today? Well, I want to show you a video. Some of you have seen this before. Uh, we'll go ahead and show the video, and then I'll give you a couple words on it. <laughs> not going to wade into the controversies around this video. We're not going to wade into any of the politics or anything like that. But what I want you to see in this video is that it's a human Jesus, isn't it? It's a very human Jesus put forth that says, this is what he came for. Are they right? Absolutely. Jesus didn't, choose, didn't teach hate. Well, he taught to hate sin. Did he, choose, did he come to wash feet? Yes, he did that. He washed the feet of Judas along with his disciples. But is that far enough? Now, granted, it's a, it's a you know, million-dollar commercial that shows at the Super Bowl, so you can't really do a full sermon, um, though I, I would watch it. The thing about it is, is that it, it didn't go far enough, did it? Now, to defend these guys, they do have a website you can click on, and you can get in touch with a pastor, and hopefully that works. But the thing about it is, is lots of people, including some of us, we stop at Jesus just being a man. We stop at it, oh, he's just that. He's just a man. I just need to be like him. Is that true? Yes. I need to follow what he says. Yes. 
But it can't stop there. It doesn't go far enough. Just like these Pharisees, all they could imagine was a human Jesus. We've got to expand our imagination. Because yes, he was 100% human. But that other part is just as important, if not more. He was 100% God. They expected a righteous man to come. And this half-truth is not there. It's not enough. See, if Jesus is just a man and he shows up, what hope do we have today? Follow some of his guidelines? Yeah, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. He's just another human. Why not find a TED Talk that talks about what you're dealing with? Why not find a YouTube video or an influencer or someone who tells you what to do? See, the thing is, Christ came and he was God in the flesh. And him being God in the flesh means that if you're here today and you're dealing with marriage issues, what you need to get right first and foremost is with Christ. That's the place it starts. That's the place healing starts. Especially in marriages, right? You put two sinners together in close proximity, what did you expect would happen? You need Jesus. Your business is falling apart. Your family's at each other's throats. You need Jesus. He is the only solution to your problems. And so, what do you think of the Christ, is what Jesus asked. That's the question for us. What do you think of the Christ today? He's standing in front of you and he's saying, I'm not periphery. I'm not just somebody that lived 2,000 years ago that you can kind of bring up from time to time. No, I am the God of the universe and I came to transform you. Are you transformed? Have you been changed? He does get us but he also doesn't leave us where we're at. Because the issue we have the biggest problem with is not our roams, right? We've all got things that you know, take our minds. You know, Maybe it's immigration, maybe it's the election, maybe it's taxes, maybe it's inflation, maybe it's politics, maybe it's gender, LGBTQ, sexual identity, whatever that is that takes your mind and makes it the focus. That's not your biggest issue. Your biggest issue is are you right with the Lord? And whether you've been in church your whole life and you feel pretty right with them, there's still more to go. We need to be right with the Lord. So the first point is, is he is. He is David's son. The second is Jesus is David's Lord. And this is when the news gets really, really good. But I gotta take you through some confusing things to get to it, okay? So let's go. Verse 43. He said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying. Now, let's stop right there. He says, David in the spirit. What he's saying there is he's saying, this is not David's opinion. This is not David going, oh, I'm just gonna imagine a word problem and it's gonna be really confusing and like 7,000 years from now, 4,000 years from now, people are gonna preach on it. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is, he's, th- th- this psalm is inspired by the Holy Spirit. David is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How does that work? I don't know. Nobody does. But we know that the Holy Spirit came in, filled David up, and wrote through him. How much of this psalm is David and how much is the Holy Spirit? Don't know. But what we do know is the Holy Spirit is the one that did it. And Jesus is saying that here. This is written by David in the Spirit. So where was David when this psalm was written? He was the king. He was the top dog. There was no one above him. He was the first king of the Davidic line. He had no king over him except God. 
And no matter how great any of David's kids were, David would never bow down to them. He's not bowing down to Solomon. He's not bowing down to any of his grandkids. So the question is, is why is David calling him Lord? Why would he do that? This word, how is it then, is kind of a little awkward. It kind of means, why does he call him Lord? And I think the answer the Pharisees could say is because he did. Like, duh, right? This is history. It's not like we, you know, are doing it. But even more so, Jesus is saying, in what way is he actually Lord? Like, how is it that David is calling this guy Lord if David's the, David's the king and he's got God over him and it's God, David, and then he's saying that he has a Lord over him? Well, how does this work? So we are going to spend some time in Psalm 110, just not today. Come back on July 7th, Lord willing. Over the summer, we'll be in the Psalms and we're going to look at the entire Psalm then. But today, we got to hit this first verse. Verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David said, or Jesus says this, and it's like, mic drop. How is it that worked then? And then no one can answer him. We look at that and we go, I have some questions. I'm a little confused by this. This verse, actually the Psalm 110, is one of the most commonly quoted psalms in the New Testament. Peter quotes it, Paul quotes it, and the writer of Hebrews quotes it as evidence that Jesus is God. Look, here it is right here. And we look at it and we go, I just really don't get this. So let me see if I can help you with it. The Lord, right at the beginning, this means God, okay? God. God said to my, that's David, Lord. God said to my Lord, okay? Sit at my, that's God, right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So one of the things you can do, and I'm gonna give you all freedom to do this, you can write in your Bibles, okay? You can color in your Bibles, all right? You can use highlighters in your Bibles. And this is one of those places where, for me, visually, I want to see the colors. Who is talking where? Do that, follow the train of thought here. So let me help you clear this up a little bit. If you go back into Psalm 110, and you look at this in the original, verse one, when it says, the Lord, it's going to be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then it's going to say, said to my Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Why is that? Is that a typo? No. What that is, is that is helping us read our Bibles because we don't read Hebrew. Okay? And I can tell you all, Hebrew is really hard. Okay? It's not fun. It has all these rules that you learn, and they apply to two words out of 10,000. I mean, it's like English, but worse. So don't worry about learning Hebrew. Trust your Bibles. When it says, all caps, Lord, this is the name of God. It's the word Yahweh, which is I am. This is the name that God said when Moses goes, who should I say is talking? Well, I am. That's Yahweh. And so when they were writing in the Bible, whenever they would come across this, they would pause and they would clean themselves and then they'd write the next section. Right? So a lot of times in our Bibles, what we see is they would use the word Lord, but then later on they would use other words for God, like, just like we do. We would say He, or we'd say Lord, or the Almighty, or something like that. But the reader at this time would have known that the first Lord is God's pr proper name. Yahweh said to my Lord, said to David's Lord. So what is the second Lord? Well, this word means my master, my ruler. Now, this is kind of interesting. 
the God of the universe said to David's Lord, his master. So how does David have a master over him that's not God, but is God. Like, there's some confusion here. And what, what Jesus is saying is he's saying the only way this makes sense is if the Lord that David is, is worshiping and saying is his Lord is also God. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise. Three years ago, tomorrow, we did our second sermon in Matthew. It was on Matthew 1. We looked at this verse. You guys all know it. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Matthew understands this. Matthew's not confused. He gets what Jesus was arguing here and what he was saying. He's saying the Messiah is not just a man, but he's also God. And we know that because when David is writing his psalm, he says, God said to my Lord, the one who rules me, who is also God. He's saying, I don't care how big your problems are. Not, it's not that David's son is here, but David's God is here. Now, Psalm 110 just continues to keep going, but Jesus only quotes the next part. Sit at my right hand. And you're like, okay, what's the big deal with that, right? Well, and when we, we lose this a little bit because like we, save, you know, we say, hey, so-and-so's got a spot by them. I'm gonna go sit by them. Hey, there's my friend at the basketball game. I'm gonna sit by him. Hey, honey, I saved you a seat. Come sit. Or the kids in the room, shotgun, right? Never have any fights over that, right? We don't equate sitting equally with someone as anything other than just, hey, you got lucky. You showed up before someone else did. You saw the car before they did. But that's not how this works. When the king is sitting on his throne, no one is allowed to sit even with him. His throne is high and exalted. No one's allowed to sit on his level. And to allow someone to sit on his level is saying, you are equal with me. Kings didn't do it. But here we see the king of the universe saying, come, you, the Lord of David, sit at my right hand. This means you are majestic. You are mine. So David is recounting that God is calling out and saying, Jesus, come and sit at my right hand. Why? Because you are God with me. Now, we have some problems here because Isaiah 42.8 says, the Lord will give his glory to no one else, meaning no other beings. Isaiah 45 says, every knee will bow before Yahweh, God. But then Paul comes along in Romans and Philippians and countless other places and says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. See, God doesn't share his glory, and he's not having to because Jesus is God. And we haven't even gotten into the really good passages that say that. Go read John 1. Go read the entire book of John. That's what it's about. We use a big word that is not in the Bible, but it explains it. It's called Trinity, which means tri-unity. God is three persons in one being. Three who's, one's, one what. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss novel, but that's what it is. He is God, is the Father, God is the Son, God's the Holy Spirit. It's confusing, it's mysterious, but wouldn't God, if we could understand him, wouldn't, wouldn't he not be God? Wouldn't we have a hard time if we could say, I can draw a picture of him, and this makes all of God? That's not really much of a God to be worshiping. So this is the God we have. 
Verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How can a son be a Lord over a father? Jesus presupposes that this person could not be David's son as we see it because to be superior than the father means you can't be a son. It's even crazier than that. Later on in in Psalm 110, the word that Abby, you, you did a good job, Abby. Good job reading, thank you. Melchizedek, that's a hard word to say. He was a priest. And it says that David's son, this Messiah, is gonna be a priest and the son of Melchizedek. Melchizedek had no kids. How does that work? I told you, come back July 7th. We'll figure that out. (laughs) But the long and the short of it is is that Jesus is way more than what we imagine. The problem today is that we come in and we don't deny the deity of Christ. We don't. We don't deny it. Everybody in this room, when you walked in, probably would say something like, Jesus is the son of God. Yeah, he's God. Don't quite understand it, but I believe it. Many Americans would say the same thing. Yeah, he's the son of God. They probably don't really know what that means, but they would say it. But the problem is, is we have lowered our awe of him down to him being our buddy and our friend and our companion. We need to stop and think that he is very God of very God. He is the God of the universe. He is the cosmic Lord. He is the cosmic dragon slayer. He is the risen Lord. So we need to see him a little differently. I want to show you a second video about that. Don't ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you. So, Pharisees were shooting too low. We are shooting too low if what we think is that Jesus is just something we add into our lives and we go, I just need a side of Jesus and I'll be fine. They did want salvation from Rome and that was huge. Biggest nation on the planet. It was huge. It would require something amazing. But bigger than Rome, bigger than all of the world empires together is the sin that is running our lives. And yes, these were all very drastic, okay? So maybe if we were to to kind of get where we're at, some of you, former gossip, former adulterer, former looked at pornography every day, former alcoholic, former abuser, former, 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 put the sin in there. This is the full picture. Christ the creator. It says in the Bible that he created everything and holds it all together. The one who did that came down into creation to meet with us, not to give us a good example, though he did. Not to teach us, though he did, but to save us. And sadly, the Pharisees missed this. Look at verse 46. 
No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. This should have been the start of all the questions. Explain to me more. How do I get this? Instead, they get the foretaste of the prophecy in Psalm 110 that everyone stands mute before Jesus. This is the last time Jesus speaks with the Pharisees. He knows this. He knows that there's not going to be any more interactions with these Pharisees. So he wastes not a single breath and says, you need to see what's most important. You're going to die and go to hell if you don't see this truth, which is Jesus saves. Not only from hell, but from all the sin that makes us earn that, right? He shows that he loves them so much that he won't get away from the truth. So not a single Pharisee believed that we know of. Yet, there was a Pharisee that came along. This is what he wrote. Promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was a descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The apostle Paul got this. See it? Son of David, son of God, my Lord. He really got it. Do we get it? This one, this Jesus is not just a man, though he was. It's not just a king, though he is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We need to make sure we don't keep Jesus in the manger. That's where most, Christ, most Americans do. And even having Jesus on the cross, we kind of have a, have a pious and I'm holy and I just picture him on the cross. We need to get past that and see where he is now. He is risen. Stephen, when he is martyred for the faith, looks up into heaven and what does he see? He sees Jesus, not just at the right hand of God, but standing there to welcome him in. John sees Jesus on the island of Patmos while the book of Revelation is being, being shown to him. John sees Jesus, and what does it say he did? He fell down like a dead man when his best friend showed up because of how glorious this Jesus is now. We need to recover the understanding of who Jesus is and where he is now. Last week we saw the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, and all your mind. Here in today's passage, Jesus has said, you need to understand, I am that God. I am him. Now, Jesus is Lord. Is he our Lord? Do we love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind? It's not enough to believe that he was God or that he died on the cross. We must love him. We must have a relationship with him. He needs to be our all in all. Nothing else will do. So the question, who do you say Jesus is? There are some implications for us here. Jesus says he's God. Jesus says he was man. Jesus said he came for your sins. He came for all of you. Do we believe that? Do we take it seriously? Jesus is just a man. We can discount it. He's a little crazy at times. That's why he said that. But if he's God... This is what we need to pay attention to. We need to honestly look at our lives and go, am I his or am I trying to take his spot? Illustration came to me that I want to share with you. 
Each of us is like a man or a woman who's been gifted a life remodel, right? Some rich person that has money beyond what we can imagine comes to us and says, I want to remodel all of your life, okay? We're going to bulldoze your house and we're going to build whatever you want there. All the amenities to make all the rich people in the world go nuts. Not only that, but I'm going to give you the car that's not even on the market yet. That'll run forever. I'm going to give you your own airplane. Oh, and by the way, you don't have to do anything for it. I'm going to remodel and do it all. Sounds like a dream, doesn't it? That's what we're offered when the Creator came into creation, to recreate each of us. But where we sit, we sit there and we go, ah, you know, that's a really nice offer, but what I could really use is, could you feng shui my living room a little bit, maybe slap some paint up there, and I'm good. Let's just, we'll stay in this little house and, we'll, you know, my car that works sometimes, we'll just, whatever. Yeah, I'll keep working. I'll just keep doing my thing. Could you just come in and spruce up a little bit of it? That way I don't feel too bad. See, isn't that what we do with God? Isn't that what we do with Christ? We do. We take Christ and we go, I'll have a little bit of him. I'll sprinkle him on the side of whatever else I'm doing. That is not going to work. It's not going to do it. If he's God, then treat him like God. If he's a man, go ahead and treat him like an addition, just like you would take advice from other gurus throughout history. Jesus must be our God, and he must have reign in our lives, which means we follow his commands, we pursue him, we get to know him, and we do that through the word, through prayer, through our fellowship, and we spend time with him. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And in a second, we're going to bow our heads. The Lord's been speaking to you today. The Lord's been sharing something. The Lord's been showing you places where you've decided, I'm in charge of this room. I'm in, I'm in charge of this wing. I'm in charge of this portion. Surrender. Surrender to Jesus. Some of you have got problems in your life that the Lord wants to deal with, but he hasn't dealt with your sin problem yet first. So surrender to him. Where is that place that you're still holding out that you say, I'm the God of this room. I'm the God of this area. I'm the God of this portion. Surrender. Let the God of the universe take over. He loves you. He wants to do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your son to die in our place. Lord, it's amazing to me that you would do that. Lord, it's amazing to me that you would send the most perfect being in the universe into human flesh to come and die for humans that so many of them don't want anything to do with you. Lord, forgive us for where we do that with portions of our lives, with people in our lives that don't even know that we're believers because we hide it. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would stir up in each and every one of us new life. Lord, you said that you came to make all things new. Recreate us. Make us look like your son. Give us a taste of eternity, of that new heaven and new earth right here and right now as you renovate our lives. Lord, we so badly need it. So please do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.